This is Broccoli. Content that's good for you. In this episode, I speak to people who share their struggles with mental health, including suicidal thoughts. Listener discretion is advised for anyone who might find this triggering. Welcome to Your Broccoli Weekly. I'm Diora. In today's episode, we'll be looking at the way the coronavirus lockdown is affecting people's mental health and how this may lead to behavioural changes in the future. The lockdown has had a profound impact on everyday lives. With limitations on social contact, many are unable to see family and friends. Jobs have been lost, and on top of all of that, there's an endless cycle of negative news as thousands of people die from the virus. All of these drastic changes aren't easy to process and are bound to affect how we all feel mentally. And there have been conversations about the importance of well-being, but I found that they've been generic ones that often focus on baking cakes and going on runs, sometimes not considering the fact we're not all wired the same way or going through the same experiences. I wanted to speak to people about their mental health under lockdown. I asked people to share their stories on Twitter, and I don't think I've received so many responses in my life. People are really keen to have this conversation. Jamisha is 24 and lives in London. She has a chronic health condition called lupus, which affects the way she feels from day to day. It's a range of challenges I feel like has been faced in lockdown and they kind of all present themselves as it continues to go. One of the first ones was anxiety because there wasn't that much information. We didn't know well, first of all, we didn't even know if we were going to get locked down. And then after lockdown, we didn't know how long. The other one was physical touch. My family are not a very touchy type of people. And I'm not either. But then after a period of time, I think maybe like three, four weeks, I was like, I haven't touched anyone. And it made me feel really human because it's like, wow, that lack of physical touch really can have an impact on your mental health because you just feel like you haven't really had a really proper connection with someone. And we don't have um, the most stable family life at the moment. And so when you're all together all the time and it's five of us, yeah, it just presents its own challenges. And so I've been going through periods of like anxiety and then sometimes just depression, um, really low points. When your home is not a place in which you finally can relax and there's still tension there, that also brings its challenges. So even before lockdown, there was there was challenges as well. She's also been feeling an increasing pressure to stay productive, even if she's feeling unwell. Sometimes we measure our value by our productivity. But when you have a chronic illness and you can't produce, then what is your worth? And you start questioning if you have value at all. You don't have to um, be the productivity queen during this time. Like if you don't do that, it's actually totally fine. I just think, like I said, when lockdown started and I was in this camp as well, some of the messaging was like, now's the time to level up and progress and do all the things that you wanted to do. And that once again, can have an impact on your mental health if you're not achieving those things. And it's, it's like, it's totally fine if you're not, if you don't become fluent in French after lockdown, it's actually okay. Like, you're still a cool person. I also spoke to Mike, who works in TV production. He says he was doing well until the lockdown, and then things went downhill. The issues I've struggled with um, sort of over the last few years have sort of been um, self-esteem, anxiety and uh, depression. Basically a life's worth of 
sort of issues that I've not talked about and suppressed and it just um, got to the point where it wasn't sustainable. I had to sort of really do something about it to sort of save my life, basically. And I started getting some counselling and it's been a sort of rocky road back from there. I would say I was doing okay up until the lockdown. I was in a much better place than I had been. It can be like a switch. You know, I'd have points where someone would switch on and I'd just feel so down and so despondent and I couldn't even pinpoint why. What are some of the challenges you've been facing since the lockdown has come into effect? Work's been a big factor. I'm a freelance TV producer. There's just the relentless need to be on top of the news. So the relentless need for me to and the team to, to read every single aspect of coronavirus, watch every news report, see every statistic. You know, I found myself feeling increasingly stressed. And I think having that access to everything and reading everything and then feeling like no one was doing anything, feeling like the government weren't doing enough and you could see this big car crash coming, I found it incredibly stressful. I also, because of my self-esteem, I sometimes struggle with issues of asserting myself. So it was quite a challenge from that point of view to speak up at work and say, why are we still coming in? Why aren't we working from home yet? And I found that quite difficult. On the day we got sent home, um, just prior to lockdown, I actually got home and I just burst into tears because I was just so relieved that we weren't, I wasn't going to have to get on the tube again and that I was sort of in my safe space. I've got asthma as well. So there was a sort of added level of worrying over my health, which sort of plays into my anxieties. You know, initially going into lockdown was quite good for me because um, it, it allowed me to sort of have control over my sort of surroundings. I'm sort of quite close with, I've got a lot of close friends and family and I've got particularly a couple of couple of friends who I would see regularly who, you know, I feel comfortable talking about how I'm feeling with. Um, so it was really, I would say in lockdown initially, it was really, it was like this sort of boost. I sort of felt this, this sort of bounce of, oh, I'm relieved and this is actually quite nice and I quite like being in lockdown. And then that sort of gave way to feeling, oh God, I can't see these people now and I'm used to having this. And I could feel sort of anxiety bubbling up about that. So it has been really hard. Unlike Mike and Jamisha, Liv, who is currently based in Glasgow, is surprised that her mental health has improved. So I've been dealing with mainly depression for the last four or so years. It started when I was in like my third and fourth years of university and it stemmed a lot from kind of like putting a lot of pressure on myself and dealing with perfectionism to an extreme extent. So the last four years have just kind of been slowly trying to get better and better. And I have definitely been seeing some improvements, which is nice. It's one of these things that I think the way that people talk about depression and anxiety now tends to be in this very uniform way. You kind of miss out on a lot of how much it varies from person to person. So that it's not always this thing of like, you're fine and then you're not fine. It's very much like day to day. And I think lockdown's been quite good at forcing me to take it day by day rather than trying to gallop ahead and just fixate on the future, which you can't actually know anything about. When you say day to day, like, you know, you say it's not really uniform and it can be day to day. What do you mean by that? There are some days where... I will say have a really kind of productive day as it goes. So, or I'll feel really good. And it's kind of like, I'll have so much energy that maybe the following day, it's almost like I'm hungover from it. So then I have a sudden dip 
and it's a bit weird. It's almost like a strange kind of come down from it. And I guess that's what I mean by the kind of day to day that it sort of comes at you when you don't really expect it. I think now, because I've been dealing with it for quite a long time, I know how to sort of recognize it and know when it might be approaching, know when it might be that kind of varied sort of up and down. But yeah, it's just kind of, it's not always very predictable, I guess is what I mean. So I was made redundant in mid-March. I think I was really worried then because I was so, in that moment, I was so upset and really devastated. And I think I started to go into that spiral of being like, oh, it's me, of course it happens to me or something like that. But very quickly, I had to sort of deal with the fact that it's not personal. It's not just me going through this. I'm not alone. There are many people in similar or worse positions right now. So in kind of having that knowledge there, it's made it much easier to kind of rationalise those thoughts that usually might be debilitating and might completely sort of eat away at me and maybe have this kind of consuming, overwhelming effect it's it's horrible to say it, but it's quite nice to know that it's something which you can kind of rationalise your thoughts against and that you can take yourself out of that sort of very isolating, very sort of insular experience that depression sometimes brings you into. It's been actually kind of like, it's been a bit of a peace of mind in a way. I think if this had happened under any other circumstances, I don't know where I'd be. I don't really know how I'd be able to deal with it. I know it would be something that would be extremely triggering and I'd probably get into a really, really bad place over it because it's it would be all of my worst fears about myself confirmed. Yet with this, it's just been quite different and it's interesting to see how that's kind of manifested itself. And it, apparently it takes a pandemic for that to <laughs> actually, for me to actually kind of feel like, oh yeah, it's not all about me. Cool. Leah, a social media and content expert, has found that her mental health hasn't drastically got better or worse, but she's noticed it's been different. I have been diagnosed with depression and anxiety disorder, and that affects me mainly from a depression point of view. If I don't have the medication that I've been prescribed, which is sertraline, I can quite quickly become suicidal and have lots of racing thoughts along those lines. From an anxiety point of view, um, something will build up in me to eventually turn into a panic attack, which makes lots of social situations quite difficult. Since the pandemic and lockdown, the main difference that I've noticed is that I'm far more frequently kind of yo-yoing between being very up and then very down. So very able to kind of spur myself on to be proactive, to, you know, get everyday things done, then go a bit beyond that, get out and safely um, do some exercise, for example. And I can like for a little while, keep up that kind of chain of events. But suddenly I will feel like I've been dropped from a great height suddenly be very sensitive, very sad, found myself um, kind of crying at most things. The parts of lockdown and living through a pandemic that have had the biggest effect on my mental health, I think a large part of it is um, a kind of like an automatic mistrust in other people. So for example, obviously I've been isolating in line with the government's guidelines, but 
we are allowed to go to the supermarket when we're running out of food, for example. But I, it suddenly felt a lot more like everyone around me was a predator carrying this thing that I couldn't see. And it was like waiting to pounce and infect me. And that sort of, that builds up um, in your mind. And I just remember in one of the earlier weeks going to my local corner shop and crying because, because I, I was, I felt like I was taking too long uh, choosing a variety of tomato. Evidently, people with all sorts of mental health experiences have reacted to the lockdown in different ways. I reached out to psychiatrist Raj Basord, who explained why that might be. In terms of the kind of personality predisposition or mental health problem people may have, which, which is likely to collide in a worse sense with the current predicament, it's the anxiety disorders. So people who are suffering from an anxiety disorder, and these include things like obsessive compulsive disorder, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, these are people who are fearful and they see threat outside in the environment. So classically, an agoraphobic, for example, is very anxious about going outdoors because they're very nervous about finding themselves away from a place of safety. So anxiety disorders are very common, and there's a sense in which we are biologically programmed to experience anxiety. So there is a sense in which if we now find ourselves living in a very threatening environment, where even normal social encounters on the pavement seem to invoke life and death situations, it would be completely understandable that people would experience heightened anxiety. So it's the anxiety disorders in particular, even people who weren't necessarily anxious before, they may have become quite anxious, which is the key territory, I think, in terms of people's mental health at the moment. Not everyone is having an overwhelmingly negative response. So I'm going to be quite blunt here, and this, this may lead people to run screaming from the room and, and be a bit provoked and irritated by what I'm about to say, but I'm just being blunt and I, I apologise. There's a large group of people who don't like other people. So they don't like meeting people at work. They prefer to socially isolate. That would be their preferred position normally. And social isolation is a gift to those people because they didn't really like engaging, interacting with people. So they love lockdown. I have several patients who are quite blunt with me about the fact they love the lockdown and they're hating the moment when it's going to be lifted and they have to engage with other people. There's a community of people who are referred to in America in the USA, they're, they're famous. They're called preppers. So preppers are a group of people who are envisaging the Armageddon or the apocalypse or the end of all days coming quite soon. So they went off and there's a whole industry around preppers. They invested in guns and bunkers and tinned food. And they had their bunkers secreted somewhere out in the remote wilderness because they were planning for the end of the world where society would break down and they'd have to defend themselves and survive without the normal social structures and infrastructure the rest of us take take for granted. So the kind of catastrophizers and the preppers, for example, are to some extent feeling a kind of I told you so about the current situation. They feel prepared for it. And um, they, they feel now that their worldview has finally uh, been justified. With such a variety in the intensity and nature of mental health experiences, how can we have better conversations that go beyond spreading a generic one-fits-all message? And how can we make sure that those who need serious medical help can get it? Raj fears that some of the mental health advice out there isn't specific enough. 
most times when people are under stress, it's because one thing has happened to them. The unprecedented situation today is stress sequences, which is a series of stresses that keep coming at you one after the other. And I think that requires very specific uh, tailored advice. Really, what we're facing today is that normal people who haven't got mental health problems are faced with the question of resilience. Resilience being, how do we prevent ourselves developing a disorder in the face of very stressful circumstances? And that's the key issue. Just because you're upset by something that's happened and and people are going to be upset, there's a distinction to be driven between being upset and developing a mental health problem. Now, the psychology of resilience is 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 very well known and, and very specific, but certainly that's the key territory we have to be in. How do we help people be resilient in the face of stress? Now, a lot of the mental health advice that's being bandied around in the media is not very good advice because it's advice really that psychologists and psychiatrists have developed um, based on what happens when people are already ill, because that's what psychology and psychiatry, generally speaking, is about. Those are the kind of people that psychiatrists tend to see, for example, in the clinic. People have already become ill and need help to get better. That's not what the world needs. What the world needs is resilience training, which is you're well now, you're afraid you're not going to be so well in the future because of the stress sequences you're facing. So how to be resilient in the face of stress is the key question. So while exercising and picking a new hobby may work for some, others may require much more serious medical help. I spoke to Sarah, who has diagnosed OCD, depression and anxiety. She is worried that people who don't have proper access to a professional will try to medicate serious mental health issues with generic wellness tips. The wellbeing industry is really going to try and capitalise this and we're going to be seeing really, really dodgy messages coming across like, you know, different pills and like different like things that you can do, which is an issue already. I mean, I, I can't count the amount of times that someone has told me to do yoga or drink herbal tea just to help with my OCD. And I, I think that that could be very damaging for people and they might, because it's going to be so difficult to see a doctor... They might end up trying to take a herbal solution. A lot of them can have a very negative effect. And really, I think people should go and see a doctor and get medical advice first and foremost. Usually, there are plenty of services and resources available for those struggling with their mental health. People can seek NHS help and be referred to someone through their GP. Alternatively, some choose to seek private therapy. There are also mental health charities like Samaritans, Mind and many others which provide online resources and a 24-hour helpline. However, with the lockdown imposed, mental health facilities are having to change some of the ways they provide their services, especially when face-to-face therapy is no longer available. I spoke to Laura, who is head of advice and information services at a charity called Rethink Mental Illness. She told me about the way the charity is adapting to these changes. We offer practical help and information for anyone affected by mental illness on a huge range of issues. So we cover treatments, conditions, the Mental Health Act, so what to do if you're you're sectioned, the Mental Capacity Act, how to live with mental illness. Rethink also provide a wide range of community services. So we provide um, advocacy, we support people in their homes, and we've got a network of peer support groups as well, who are groups of people who've all got experiences of mental illness and are working together to help each other. In the advice and information service, um, we've been quite lucky because we um, we operate all our support remotely anyway. So 
we've been able to just simply continue. We've just moved all of our staff to working from home. So now um, in those wider rethink services, people working in those services are also using technology to, to reduce risk um, and changing the way they work and um, to keep themselves and, and their service users safe. So there's definitely been some challenges. I would say on one end of the scale in my service, it's been fairly simple kind of moving people to working from home, making sure our staff are safe. But within our services, it's been um, that our normally operating face-to-face has been a, a much bigger change. Um, and we've had to get our service users used to interacting via phone and by, by digital channels as well. Although technology seems to offer some alternatives, it may not be the solution for everyone. I definitely think there's a, there is a concern for people who yeah, are not digitally confident of missing out on, on some services, um, especially because even when we advertise ourselves, um, actually a lot of the time we do that on, on social media online to tell people that there's a phone line. That is, is a worry of ours. Raj has similar concerns about this. So a lot of people have been finding the use of video conferencing or, or electronic means of trying to, to replace therapy very unhelpful. They've, they've found that it doesn't really work. And there is a sense in which deep confiding, as opposed to casual chatting over sharing a baking experience, for example, that casual chat happens perfectly acceptably via Uh, electronic media, but deeper stuff where it's quite important to pay attention to the mental state of the other person to notice, for example, how distressed or not distressed they are, is not really served by electronic communication. So I do think there is a serious problem in that the attempt to provide mental health services via electronic media is almost certainly not likely to be working so effectively for large numbers of people. There are growing fears that mental health services are being overwhelmed right now. A survey conducted by mental health charity Mind found that a quarter of those who've tried to access mental health support during lockdown have been unable to get the help they need. Suicide crisis witnessed a 40% increase in the number of people contacting the charity service in the days after the lockdown was extended. Responding to Mind's survey, Claire Murdoch, NHS National Director for Mental Health, said, The NHS is pulling out all the stops to respond to the biggest global health threat in a century, while also ensuring people can still safely access the mental health services they need. So our message to anyone experiencing poor mental health is, the NHS is here for you. Please help us help you and come forward for the care you need. When talking to people, I became increasingly aware that most were worried about what's going to happen after lockdown and how our lives will go back to normal. Mike shares his anxieties about post-lockdown life. The end of lockdown, to me, is sort of, it's like the wild, wild west. It's it's uncertainty, and it's, we'll try this, but we don't know if it'll work. So the thought of going out, the thought of, you know, who I interact with. I mean, I suppose, like, honest, and this is an example of how much it sort of really grips me and my self-esteem, you know, I worry... Oh, if my friends meet up, and um, what if I don't want to meet up? What will people think of me? What if everyone goes back to work and starts meeting up and I don't feel comfortable doing it? And I say that, what, what if they're not my friends anymore? What if they don't want to hang out with me? What if they judge me for it? I know objectively saying that out loud, it's, it's well, you know, they, people shouldn't and good friends shouldn't do that. And if, but, but that's the sort of things that I worry about, the uncertainty of that and the uncertainty of how I'll behave or how I'll want to be that makes me feel very anxious. Similarly, Liv is worried about the way people will behave 
I think it's the fear about like, what do we do now? How do we interact with each other? Are we actually going to be nicer? Or is this just another sort of idea that we're fixating on to try and get ourselves through and that we're not actually going to put the legwork in? And I'm just slightly worried, yeah, that it's as soon as lockdown is lifted, it will just be business as usual. And we'll forget all of these things that were really important to kind of like learn and understand in this time. I won't have that thing there to kind of rationalise it. I'll have to be job hunting again. I'll have to be kind of putting myself into these situations where a lot of my idea of like my self-worth and how I feel is definitely going to be sort of in a precarious position again. Experts say newly conducted polls and emerging studies into COVID-19, together with lessons from past outbreaks, suggest that the pandemic could have profound and potentially long-term impacts on mental health. I asked Raj what we can learn from past pandemics and what he thinks post-lockdown life may look like. So now we've got a problem, which is if you want people to come out of the lockdown, you have to get them to stop being afraid of the virus. And that is not going to be that easy. So I think one of the things you're going to see is that fear of the virus is going to continue. So a lot of people will be so scared of the virus, they'll have to try and find a different way of getting to work, or they may not actually go to work after the lockdown is over. We're going to see a continual problem of people struggling to overcome the fear of the virus and the fear of dealing with people. I think people are going to avoid each other on pavements and get very angry and upset with other people if social distancing gets violated into the future. We're going to see a lot of social uh, corrosion, a lot of fights breaking out. You, You have heard of road rage. There will be COVID rage where people will be very upset and angry with other people for violating their personal space. And by the way, there has been some research that suggests when you look at generations after the Spanish flu from 1918 and 1919, if you look at people who directly confronted it, then their their kids and then their kids' kids, i.e. people three or four generations on, and you compare them with, with three or four generations back, people who had no heritage of confronting the Spanish flu, you still find a psychological difference, which is three generations on, the people whose ancestors faced the Spanish flu trust people less, even today. So we're looking at a possible generational impact that could go on for approaching 100 years in terms of the psychological shifts in the population. And that has serious implications for possible future world wars. Governments may, in an attempt to divert attention from their own incompetence in handling the virus, may stoke or exploit that deterioration in trust, which I think is going to occur, to say, let's not trust the Chinese or let's not trust those people over there who we blame for our problems over here. So there is a grave danger that the pandemic will lead on in a few years' time to a deterioration in relationships between people, not just at a micro-community level, uh, but also um, between countries. Professor Ed Balmore, who is the head of the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge, thinks research conducted on the effects of the pandemic on mental health has been small-scale and fragmented. Writing in the journal Lancet Psychiatry, Bullmore and a team of colleagues in mental health sciences say that among key priorities is the need for real-time monitoring of mental health issues, both across the general population and at-risk groups. Director of the Suicidal Behaviour Research Laboratory and Professor of Health Psychology at Glasgow University, Rory O'Connor says, If we look at the SARS outbreak in 2003, We know there's evidence there. There were increased rates of anxiety, increased rates of depression and post-traumatic stress, 
and in some groups, there were also increased rates of suicide. Increased social isolation, loneliness, health anxiety, stress, and an economic downturn are a perfect storm to harm people's mental health. If we do nothing, we risk seeing an increase in mental health conditions. So what can we do? The country's top scientists say we need to examine the policies the government is using to manage the pandemic, which result in unemployment and poverty. These play a key role in mental health problems. They also think it's important to explore the ways people have been coping with the pandemic and urgently find ways to support mental well-being, especially on vulnerable groups. In addition, they said we need to understand the impact of repeatedly looking at news and other media around COVID-19. So what do we gain from having more conversations about how the lockdown affects us on a mental level? I know I think mental health, it's hard to pinpoint with stats and it's hard to, it's not black and white. And I think that for that reason, a lot of newspapers shy away from it. I'd, I would like to see more TV broadcast and more sort of broadsheet coverage of it. In my life before I was going to therapy, I was just bottling stuff up and I was convinced it was just me and convinced that no one else could possibly be feeling like this. And like you just, you know, even just talking to you, like we're going, oh, okay, you, you think that too. I think that's a huge thing for people to see themselves in others. And uh, the media has a huge opportunity to do that. If you've been affected by the themes discussed in this podcast, please refer to the episode description where you'll find a list of resources and support lines. I hope you've enjoyed this special episode of Your Broccoli Weekly. I've been your host, Diora, and you can find me on Twitter at Diora. For more information on this episode, head to our website, www.yourbroccoliweekly.com. Join the conversation and share your views using the hashtag YourBroccoliWeekly. So, due to the coronavirus and social distancing measures, we have been unable to keep up our usual format, covering the three biggest stories of the week. With this in mind, we've decided to pause Your Broccoli Weekly until we're able to return to our regular format. Don't worry, we'll be back before you know it. In the meantime, I'll be doing some special investigations, so look out for those. This episode of Your Broccoli Weekly was produced by Cass Denton, with help from Jarja Mohammed and me. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>